Roughly 65% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. I would suggest these are people that are religious, people that go to church at least sometimes, people that celebrate Christmas and Easter. But here's my question. Is that enough to experience new life in Christ and experience the presence of the Holy Spirit within? What's what we want to talk about this morning? If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 18. Last week, Josh took us through the end of what's called Paul's second missionary journey. He's back in Antioch. We pick it up in verse 23. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So verse 23 then marks the launch of the third missionary journey, This is the last of Paul's missionary journeys. This will cover roughly 1,500 miles, so pretty significant in the ancient world. He is in Antioch. It's easy in these stories to lose track of time, but he was roughly in Antioch about a year, probably the summer of 52, around to the spring of 53, and that's when he launches this third and final journey. Now a man named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So verses 24 to 28 actually cover something that happened in Ephesus during Paul's absence. So at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, he goes through Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla stay there. Paul moves on back to Antioch. And during that year of his absence, this story happens. We're introduced to a man by the name of Apollos from Alexandria. Alexandria was named after Alexander the Great, was a huge city, roughly 600,000 people. One of the significant things that happened there is the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint was written in Alexandria probably two to three hundred years before this occasion. Uh, When Claudius expelled the Jews out of Rome, many of them ended up In Alexandria, it's estimated as much as one-third of the population there was Jewish. 
Apollos is described as an eloquent man, which means both words and ideas. He had something to say, and he was really good at saying it. It also says that he was mighty in the scriptures. Powerful, that's the word from which we get our word dynamite. Explosive in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. That's all he would have had at that time. He, verse 25 says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. That word instructed is the word from which we get our word catechism. So it's talking about some sort of formal training in order to understand the way of the Lord. It's likely that there were disciples of John the Baptist who became missionaries and went out and covered this area, set up some sort of training, and he had experienced that. And it also says he was fervent. That's an interesting word. It literally means boiling. We would probably use the word passionate. He was passionate, mighty in scriptures, eloquent, passionate about his message, teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. So it's hard from that description to figure out exactly what he was teaching. It does appear that he understood the message of John the Baptist, that a Messiah is coming, uh, and all of that. He was baptized in the baptism of John. So what specifically he understood about Jesus, we can't really determine. What he was saying was accurate, but it was incomplete. So he's teaching at the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla hear him. They pull him aside, fill him in on what he's missing, which would have to be the rest of the Jesus story. That Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again, that he ascended to the Father, that he sent his Holy Spirit, that he launched his church. There were all these details that Apollos wasn't familiar with, so they fill him in. We learned last week that Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers, just like the Apostle Paul. It's likely that Paul lived with them, and they probably practiced their trade together. So you can imagine hours and hours and hours of seminary training they had privately with Paul. So they're well-equipped to pull Apollos aside and help him understand the gospel more fully. It's really important to understand Luke's point in this text. And that is, Apollos was a person who was mighty in the scriptures. He understood the Old Testament. He understood the message of John. He understood the coming of the Messiah. But he did not fully understand the Jesus part. And until he did, he did not understand the gospel. Now, I find it quite remarkable that someone who is described in such powerful terms is humble and teachable enough to be pulled aside by a couple of tent makers to be instructed on the uh, message of Jesus. But he was, and because he was teachable, because he received that message, then he was useful. So he wanted to go to Achaia, specifically to Corinth, 
And the disciples thought that was a good idea, so they sent him with a letter of commendation. Apollos would have a significant ministry in Corinth. When Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he mentions several times the powerful ministry of Apollos to them. One of the things that is worth knowing, I just want to make a few comments here, is about the couple, Aquila and Priscilla. We were introduced to them in uh, verse 2. Then we learn that Paul leaves them in Ephesus when he goes on to Antioch, but they're referred to in verse 18 as Priscilla and Aquila. In other words, the names are reversed. Very unusual in first century Jewish culture to refer to the wife first. And then again in verse 26, it's Priscilla and Aquila. Certainly this is intentional and most scholars think it's a reference to Priscilla probably being the more dominant of the personalities. I don't mean that in any negative sense. She probably just was given by God a stronger personality. So this is very unusual in that culture to identify the wife before the husband. But it reminds us of something that is consistent in the book of Acts. And that is Luke is careful to celebrate the contribution of women to the mission of the church. In a first century Jewish culture, that was typically not the way it was. Jesus was uh, very careful to involve and celebrate the contribution of women to his ministry. Luke picks up that theme and continues that. So, for example, in Acts chapter 16, we find out that Lydia was the main figure in establishing the church in Philippi. Here we learn of the significance of Priscilla and Aquila and uh, to uh, teaching doctrine to Apollos. Now, just because there is a celebration of the significance and value of women doesn't mean there aren't biblical roles, both within the family and within the church. I would make the case that that's true all the way back into Genesis 2 before sin ever entered the picture. It has nothing to do with significance and value. It has to do with design and purpose. But this topic gets very confusing. Of all the topics we try to work through and arrive at some reasonable conclusion within the church, this is one of the most difficult. So let me illustrate that. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And he says he does not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. But then we get to Acts chapter 19... And Priscilla is teaching doctrine to Apollos. It's just a reminder that this is a very complex issue. You kind of are left with, which is it? 
One other detail that's interesting is when Paul was writing to Timothy as a young pastor, he was writing to Timothy as a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. So this is even talking about within the same city structure. Now, my goal this morning is to open a can of worms and then walk away from it. (laughs) There just isn't time this morning to get into all this. It's quite complex. It is a reminder that you can't just cherry pick certain verses and arrive at some conclusion that you want to arrive at. People do that all the time. We are Bereans. And we're supposed to be people that roll up our sleeves and study the scriptures to understand what's true. So you have to find all the relevant texts, you have to understand the context, and you have to try and wrestle through and try to arrive at some sort of a conclusion. I would suggest that there are many people today that have very strong opinions on this subject but they could not identify the key passages or how to interpret those passages, which tells me that opinion is not based on a study of the scripture. It's based on the prevailing winds of the culture. And we simply can't do church that way. No matter what someone's Uh, position is one thing we can all agree on, and that is Luke is very clear that women have great value and tremendous significance in the mission of the church, and we celebrate that together. Chapter 19, verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So Apollos has moved on to Corinth. Paul lands back in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, again, was a thriving city, roughly 300,000 people, which in the ancient world was still a very large city, very prosperous. Two main reasons why it prospered. One is because it was a port city, and that brought a lot of wealth into town. Also because of the massive temple to Artemis, or Roman Diana, uh, the goddess of fertility. One of the huge problems, though, with the port in Ephesus is for a variety of reasons, the waterways filled with silt and ended up in the port. So they were constantly battling the silt filling in the port. By this time in the first century, it was a significant 
problem and the ports were less and less effective. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to Ephesus today, you would have to travel about seven miles from the city of Ephesus in order to get to the edge of the sea because it's filled in with silt that much. So at this time, the wealth was coming more from the temple of Artemis, basically as a tourist attraction. So this temple was absolutely massive, considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Just to give you some perspective, roughly speaking, it was double the size of this auditorium. Think about that in the ancient world. It was remarkable. In that context, then, Paul arrives. Certainly over his time there, he had conversations with lots of people. But Luke specifically identifies this group of people because of a very specific point he's trying to make here. So he identifies these disciples. Now, just because they're called disciples does not imply that they are Christians. Disciples meant follower or learner. So they're somewhere on the path. But Paul discerns there's something that doesn't seem quite right. So he asks them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The implication is that should have been automatic. They respond, no, actually we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So what do they mean by that? Clearly, the Holy Spirit is talked about a great deal in the Old Testament. They would have known that. They were baptized in the baptism of John, and John talked about the Holy Spirit. They would have known that. One scholar translates what they said is, we didn't even know the Holy Spirit was available That captures well what they're actually saying. We did not know that we could receive the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them into what were they baptized, and they were baptized into the message of John. Paul then explains to them, again, Luke is just summarizing. There's a lot more in these sermons than what's recorded here, but he explains to them that the whole purpose of John was to do a baptism of repentance to prepare the people to receive Jesus the Messiah. So certainly Paul went on and explained that this is what happened. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he did, and and uh This is, you know, Jesus ascended and then he sent his Holy Spirit and launched his church. Once these people hear that message, they immediately believe. They're baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues and prophesy. Most scholars believe the reason that Luke is recording the incident with Apollos And now this incident with these disciples is because as of the time of the writing of the book of Acts, there were missionaries of John the Baptist, disciples who had gone out 
and declared the message of John and were continuing this movement but did not understand the Jesus part. So trying to clarify, it's not enough just to understand the Old Testament. It's not enough just to understand and be baptized in the movement of John the Baptist. Unless you get the Jesus part correct, there is no salvation. In order to experience new life, in order to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have to get the Jesus part correct or there is no gospel. So that's John's, or I'm sorry, that's Luke's intent. That's why he's telling these stories. But in the process, Acts chapter 19 becomes a good place to pause and to clarify a couple of things in the book of Acts that does get confusing. One question would be, should we today expect to receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation? Or is this something that may come subsequent to salvation? Because it seems like in the book of Acts, sometimes that was the case. Second question, then, when we receive the Holy Spirit, should we expect to speak in tongues? These are two questions I actually get asked quite regularly. And it does get a bit confusing in the book of Acts. So it's important to remember that the book of Acts covers a time of transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's about the birth and development of the church. And there's quite a bit of overlap in these two covenants that creates quite a bit of confusion. Your Bible is divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that gets a little bit misleading because theologically the division is between the Old Covenant, which goes all the way through the end of the Gospels, and the New Covenant, which is ushered in through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So sometimes when I hear people talk, they seem to be indicating the most important words in the Bible are the words of Jesus. That's uh, really not a correct statement. The words of Jesus, of course they're very important. They're the very words of God. But our claim is that the Bible is the word of God from cover to cover, authoritative and inspired. It's all the word of God. And you have to interpret the words of Jesus through the grid of understanding. It's still under the old covenant. That's why there's still a temple. That's why there's still a sacrificial system. That's why there's still a Sabbath. That's why there's still the laws and the feasts and the festivals. It's still old covenant. Jesus himself in the upper room took the elements of Passover and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He himself was saying, it's my blood that will usher in the new covenant. One of the distinctives of the new covenant is then every believer would have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But there is one generation that lived in the transition who were believers 
and then transition into the new covenant and would experience the Holy Spirit subsequent to their salvation. But that's unique to that generation. So think of it like this. There's a whole bunch of generations that lived before cell phones and the internet. And then there will be a whole bunch of generations that will live after. You've never known anything but cell phones and the internet. But there is one generation, which is my generation. We lived quite a bit of life before the internet and cell phones, and we'll live quite a bit of life after cell phones and the internet. But there's only one generation that uniquely experienced that transition. Well, that's the same thing we're talking about. There were people in the old covenant that then transitioned into the new covenant. So in the book of Acts, were there Christians that received the Holy Spirit after they had become Christians? The answer is yes, uniquely so in this period of transition. Should they then, when they receive the Holy Spirit, should we today, when we receive the Holy Spirit, expect to speak in tongues? Again, it's a question I get asked fairly regularly. Sometimes people will say, well, they were speaking in tongues all over the book of Acts. To which I'll say, no, that's not true. Three times, three places, for very specific reasons. The best way to understand this is to understand it geographically. So we're going to throw a map on the screen. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, that is the official launching of the church, which happened in Jerusalem. You had a group of people, they were already believers, but they were waiting for this distinctive moment that would define the new covenant, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit that would dwell within them. So the Holy Spirit comes upon them, evidence that something miraculous had just happened was the speaking in tongues. Not some sort of an ecstatic prayer language, but the supernatural ability to speak a language you otherwise don't speak. There's no way to fake that. There's no way to learn that. It was a miracle. Actually, the language groups are listed in Acts chapter 2. I think the symbolism is there's a promise that one day people of every tribe and tongue and nation will come together as one people in Christ. And you get a glimpse of that at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What happened was so unimaginable that the people didn't know what to think. Some people were saying, we think they're all drunk. And that's when Peter steps up and delivers a sermon to explain. This is what's happened. This is the launch of the new covenant. But God is a God of order. Just imagine if this would have happened to everyone who believed with no explanation. So it moves out to Samaria. Acts chapter 8. The apostles learn that there are believers in Samaria. 
So Peter and John go out, lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Was it subsequent to salvation? Yes, because they were uniquely in a period of transition. And they could not have understood that without the apostles explaining it to them. On that occasion, no speaking in tongues. The next one moves out to Caesarea, Acts chapter 10. Peter goes, declares the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles believe and immediately the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues. We're actually told in that text that the reason for that was because of the circumcised Jews that were there. And when they observed that the uncircumcised Gentiles were speaking in tongues, just like they did at Pentecost, they concluded they must be just as saved as we are. In Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, when they're trying to figure out, does a Gentile have to be circumcised to be fully saved? It's those Jewish witnesses from Acts 10 that step up and say, you know, we were there. We saw when they believed the Spirit came upon them, they spoke in tongues just like we did so clearly they're just as saved as we are. And that was the deciding factor for the council to say, then that's what it is. The only other time it happens is in our chapter this morning, all the way out to Ephesus. So if you think about Pentecost creating a ripple that went out to Caesarea, and then the ripples go all the way out to Ephesus, there was kind of an echo, a mini Pentecost in Caesarea and out in Ephesus. As far as we know, there's only three places and three times that happened in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 10 in Caesarea, Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. So what about today? After the transition to the new covenant, the teaching of the New Testament is every believer at the moment of salvation receives the indwelling Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, Paul goes so far as to say in Romans 8, 9, you can't truly be a Christian without the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's automatic at the moment of salvation. There is no such thing as some subsequent second blessing. The Holy Spirit is not an energy force. It's not that you have 110 volts and at some point it cranks up to 220. The Holy Spirit is a person. You don't have part of a person. You either have the person of the Holy Spirit or you don't. So you don't need any more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is automatic at the moment of salvation. Should you then be expected to speak in tongues? And the answer is no. There's no biblical evidence to support that. As a matter of fact, this biblical evidence would be that was a unique, miraculous event for a very specific time. Could it still happen today? Maybe. I don't ever like to put God in a box. God can do what he wants. There may be times somewhere in the world where he chooses to do it. That's up to him. But again, we're not talking 
about some sort of an ecstatic prayer language that can be learned, that you can go to a class and learn, that can be practiced, that can be manufactured, that can even be faked. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the supernatural ability to speak a language you don't otherwise speak. That is a miracle and requires the presence of God. All right. So if you're interested in more specifically on the gift of tongues, you can jump on the website. There's two messages from 1 Corinthians 14 where I go through a lot of the details to explain it far more than we are this morning. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So as is Paul's uh, habit, he goes to the synagogue, he's reasoning there, he makes it about three months before some level of persecution starts to arise. I think it's interesting to note he doesn't stay and fight, he just quietly moves down the road. He found basically what we would call a lecture hall. Whatever the school of Tyrannus was, whether he just owned the building or whether he was some sort of a philosopher, they would hold school during the cool of the morning and of the evening. It would sit empty basically from 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, what we would call siesta time. So probably Paul's access to this empty lecture hall was during the rest time of the day where he could teach. So probably Paul and Priscilla and Aquila made tents in the morning, uh, un, uh, taught the brethren during the afternoon, and then made tents again in the evening. It's interesting what Luke says is basically he did that for two years and all of Asia heard this message. Whether they were sending out missionaries or whether people were coming, learning, and going back isn't really clear. But an amazing ministry with Ephesus as the hub uh, at, uh, at the end of Paul's career. One thing that we also see in Ephesus is a lot of really strange things. That happened, and we'll talk about those next week. As far as Luke's point in this particular text, there's no question his point is this. It's not enough just to understand the Old Testament scriptures. It's not enough to just have been baptized. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to celebrate Christmas and Easter. It's not enough to try to be a, a really good person. The Midwest is filled with these kind of people. Without 
a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. There is no salvation. There is no presence of the Spirit within. So here's the question. How many of the 65% of Americans that identify themselves as Christians do you think have truly been born again and have the life of the Spirit within them? I don't know, but I'm guessing it's way lower than 65%. I don't know what the number is. It isn't really relevant this morning. What is relevant is to make sure you understand this. It's not enough just to know a bunch of verses from the Bible. It's not enough just to be a good person. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to go to church now and then. Not enough to celebrate Easter and Christmas. Without really understanding the message of Jesus, there is no salvation. So do you understand that you are a sinner and desperately in need of a Savior? Do you understand there's nothing you can do to change that? Do you understand that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross in payment of your sin? He was buried and he rose again. Do you understand that he offers you his salvation, the forgiveness of sin, new life in Christ now and forever, freely, simply as a gift of his grace? Do you understand that when you receive that, not only are you transformed from the inside out, new life in Christ, but you actually receive the presence of the Spirit of Jesus himself in you, both now and forever. If you've never understood that, if you've never fully understood the Jesus part of that, I would strongly encourage you, in the quietness of your own heart, to choose to receive Jesus and experience the new life he offers, both now and forever. Our Father, we're thankful that you have not called us to a bunch of religious activity, to a bunch of good works, to everybody's opinion on the Old Testament. But you've called us to experience a personal relationship with the God of the universe through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God, my prayer is that nobody would walk back out these doors this morning 
without having experienced the life that Jesus freely offers. In whose name we pray. Amen.